0: Good morning. 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 All right, let's begin with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we are again so thankful to come and worship you, study together. We ask that your spirit will enlighten us, transform us, and let us be your witnesses at this crucial time in our history. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson eight in our quarterly Present Truth in Deuteronomy, and the title is Choose Life. What's, what comes to your mind when you hear that? Choose Life. Did
1: you have a choice?
0: That you have a choice. Was the first thought temporal life or eternal life? Our memory verse, Deuteronomy 30, 19 through 20, uh, I call heaven and earth as witness today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life that, you bo- that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and you may cling to him. For he is your life, and the length of your days. Is this referring to temporal life or eternal life? Well, in Friday's lesson, quotes from the book Great Controversy, page 544, and you can see the quote in the lesson on Friday's lesson, and this is what it says. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. While life is the inheritance of the righteous, death is the portion of the wicked. Moses declared to Israel, I have set before you this day. Life and good and death and evil. The death referred to in these scriptures is not that pronounced upon Adam, for all mankind suffer the penalty of his transgression. It is the second death that is placed in contrast to everlasting life. I thought that was well-reasoned. God can't be offering them life or death in a temporal sense there, because if you were offering life or death in a temporal sense, all those people who had that offered to them back then, where are they today? They're all dead. So we can't. So, so it had to be eternal life that was being offered in those. And, and if you remember, it says stay connected. Cling to God. He is your life. Well, what's life eternal? Knowing God. Knowing God. That's right. That's exactly right. So... Is there a connection between receiving life and blessings and love for God and obeying his voice? Are they connected? Yes. What's the connection? Well, if
1: you don't obey him, you don't love him, then you're not going to have eternal life.
0: Because, and, and let's do the corollary. Oh, good, I like that. Let's do the corollary. Is there a connection between cursing, death, not loving God, and disobeying his voice? Are they connected? Does the, does the law lens you view this through make a difference? Yes. If you it through a human system, a Roman system, Roman, imperial, human, we make up rules and we enforce them with external punishments. That's human law. God creates reality. His laws are the laws upon which reality operate. Is there a difference which law lens you look through and how you understand this? You were, Tina, describing it through the design law lens how reality works. If you don't have love and God, for God in your heart and you disobey or break his laws, you're breaking the very protocols that life is built upon. And the only result of that is ruin and death. But if you see it through an imperial law, well, if you love him, you keep his rules. But if you don't keep his rules, then he keeps a demerit against you. And he's required at some point, if you don't get some payment made, to use his power to kill you. That's a completely different system and a completely different God. And you know what? It doesn't work. You can never get love, friendship, loyalty, devotion, trustworthiness by threatening to kill people who don't love you and aren't loyal to you. It never works. First three paragraphs, Sabbath lesson. Always it's a sad story. A young person, in this case 22-year-old woman, diagnosed with deadly disease, brain tumor. Even with all the marvels of modern medicine, nothing could be done until the inevitable. But this young woman, Sandy, didn't want to die. So she had a plan. After she died, her head was to be put in deep freeze, in a vat of liquid nitrogen, in hopes of preserving her brain cells And there, it would wait 50 years, 100 years, 1,000 years until sometime in the future when technology had advanced enough so that her brain, composed of neural connections, could then be uploaded into a computer and, yes, Sandy could live on, maybe even forever. Sad story, not just because a young person was going to die, but because of where she put her hope of life. Like most people, Sandy wanted life, wanted to live. But she chose a path that, in the end, surely won't work. what do you think of her plan do you think it's silly no No. No, or or is her plan based on very sound reasonable premises and things we believe for instance do we believe a person can die and live again Don't we believe Jesus died and rose again? And don't we believe Moses died and rose again? And don't we look forward to all of our loved ones being raised again? So the idea of dying and rising again is not foreign to us. We all believe that. What about having our individuality, our personhood, transferred to another body, an upgraded body, a body that is not diseased, an immortal body? Uh, Do we believe that can happen? Well, that's not far-fetched. Do we believe that, that in the resurrection that the very same body we had in this earth today, the, the particles of matter that have made up this body, will be the same particles of matter just fixed and with all the defects removed? Is that what we believe? Hmm. Well, this is interesting. This is from one of the founders of the Adventist Church named Ellen White. She wrote this. It's uh, published in Sixth Bible Commentary, page 1093. Our personal identity is preserved in the resurrection, though not the same particles of matter or material substance that went, as went into the grave. The wondrous works of God are a mystery to man. The spirit, the character of man, is returned to God where they are to be preserved. In the resurrection, every man will have his own character. God, in his own time, will call forth the dead, giving again the breath of life and bidding the dry bones to live. The same form will come forth but it will be free from disease and every defect. It lives again, bearing the same individuality of features so that friend will recognize friend. There is no law of God in nature which shows that God gives back the same identical particles of matter which compose the body before death. Well, just think that through. Weren't there some people who died in nuclear explosions in um, Nagasaki? Where are the particles of matter that made up their body? They were vaporized. They don't exist as far as we know, and they were turned back to energy. They were turned back to energy. Uh, weren't there cer- certain people that have uh, maybe gone into the ocean and got eaten by sharks? <laughs> yes? What happened to their particles of matter? <laughs> they became part of the shark's body. <laughs> okay. When
1: well, you know that God created everything, mm-hmm. certainly we create the-
0: Right. Right, so, right, but they wouldn't be the same exact particles of matter, just new. Okay. So, so the idea here being, we do believe that our individuality can be transferred to new bodies that are different bodies than the ones we currently house. We believe that. So, pardon? Please. Yes, please. Yeah, I want an upgrade, don't you? Yeah. And then there are reports of people dying on Earth today, but doing so in places where their bodies rapidly cooled And being resuscitated, uh, record, I've got the the link here if you want to check it out, up to 18 hours later, 18 hours underwater, dead, but resuscitated without any apparent diminishment in their personhood or their abilities. Do we know what the time limit is on that? Do we know, well, if it's 18 hours and two minutes, they wouldn't have been able to survive? 19 hours, 20 hours, we don't know what the time limit is on that. And, that, and also, how cold? That was just cold water, about 34 degrees, 33 degrees. How about if it was, like, really nitrogen frozen? Would that make a difference? What do we know? So is there a logic to her plan? Based on many things we believe. My, by the way, my view of those who have died... Uh, and been resuscitated on this earth, uh, those who have had those near-death experiences, those who have been in water for 18 hours with no, with no measurable brain function or heart function and been and dead, but but then brought back. My view, these people were actually not dead. Yeah. My view of death is necrosis. The cells have to necrose or die. As long as the cells are not necrotic, the person is not yet dead. Um, and these people were not dead. That's my personal view on that. They were uh, in a state of you might call suspended animation physiologically, and they were able to um, be reanimated. But, but they weren't yet dead. And and real resurrection, the resurrection that God provides, is what happened with Lazarus. And that's why Martha said, his body stinks. Because he was necrotic. He was, he was decaying. That, that's death. That's different than, than this, this uh, res- resuscitation. An interesting 60 minutes segment interview, which I have a link in the notes for. And remember, folks... Every week when the lesson goes up, my notes are there in in their entirety with all their links and the resources there. So if you want that, go go there, and you can watch this short interview, maybe 12, 15 minutes, with with somebody named Yuval Noah Harari, an Israeli professor of history and intellectual, author of the book Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, and he predicts an end to the Homo sapiens species, that's you and me, by the way, and being replaced with new upgraded species who are genetically and cybernetically enhanced or be human beings who have transferred their consciousnesses into artificial platforms within the next 100 years. He is not a kook. And he says that regular Homo sapiens like us are going to go the way of the Neanderthal, being replaced with a higher functioning um, being. He makes the difference, though, in his, it was very, very insightful, he makes the difference between consciousness, which is what we have, and artificial intelligence. Consciousness not only can problem-solve and think, but also has the capacity to love or hate, have a conscience of conviction of moral right and wrong, whereas artificial intelligence has problem-solving capacities without any sense of emotion or connection, or relation, or moral compass. That's what artificial intelligence is. Uh, an incredible problem-solving intelligence. Does this, does this sound like anything in the great controversy as, as you think about those two? A being as God created who can not only think and problem-solve, but also can love, has a, has a sense of, of, of duty, a conviction of right and wrong, a moral compass, versus an intelligent being who has no moral compass, who has no capacity to love. That's Satan today, folks. Satan is an incredible intellectual, brilliant strategist, seared his conscience, corrupted the faculties of love. Now, he certainly may feel feelings of hatred and resentment and bitterness, but the faculties of love, the moral compass, gone. ISIS, uh, so so... I don't believe he's a complete cyborg because he has those emotions. But the plan, understand my view, the plan to so-called enhance humans is designed to make us more like Satan. Not, uh, 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 more like Satan and less like Jesus. And it will be sold to us as a way to make us better. To advance us, to elevate us. Maybe even make us godlike with immortality. I wrote a blog in uh, June of this year entitled Human 2.0, The Rise of the Cyborg, Disconnecting Humans from God, in which I describe my concern uh, that these actions are designed by Satan to change the human brain in such a way that we no longer capable of responding to the Holy Spirit. This is designed to destroy the image of God in humankind. This is Satan's ultimate goal to make human beings in his image, To dwell in the spirit temple where God is to dwell, he wants to dwell there, and it's going to be sold to us like the fruit was sold to Eve. You will become like God. You will become advanced, enhanced, greater abilities, more intelligent. You can live forever. You can have eternal life. Just put in a little animal DNA. Take a little cybernetic enhancement and plant into your brain. Listen to this. This is, again, from uh, Ellen White in Three Spiritual Gifts, page 64. But if there was one sin above another which called for the destruction of the race, the human race, at the flood, it was the base crime of amalgamation of man and beast which defaced the image of God.
1: Causing confusion everywhere.
0: And caused confusion everywhere. That's exactly how the the quote finishes. That's exactly right.
1: Is that happening now?
0: Yes, it's happening now. We are already uh, uh, doing these amalgamations. There are all types of animals that have had human DNA inserted into them. You can just look it up on the Internet. And it's just a matter of time before they try to reverse this process to enhance humans with animal abilities. And I think, sadly, millions will eagerly line up to receive this when it's offered. Not only will they line up to receive it, they will pay for it. They will demand it. So is this woman's plan without rationale, without some logic behind it? It's not without rationale or logic. From a human worldview, the premises have a basis in reality. But what makes it irrational? The part of the plan that makes it irrational and doomed to fail, even if human technology could somehow achieve this and give us some type of an immortal body that we could transfer our conscience to, is that we would still be mortal beings, that body could be destroyed, and we would still be infected with fear and selfishness, and we would still be selfish, and we would still suffer heartache, pain, loss. We'd still war with each other. And it would create, I think, ultimately a form of hell on earth. It is not the eternal life that comes from God where all things are restored to perfection, where there is no pain, suffering, and heartache anymore. It's it's a grand deception. Sunday's lesson, The Tree of Life, takes us right into The Tree of Life. It quotes from the book The Great Controversy, page 532, and it says, In the midst of Eden grew a tree of life whose fruit had power for a perpetuating life. Had Adam remained obedient to God, he would have continued to enjoy free access to the tree and would have lived forever and then cut off from the tree of life, became subject to death. So what does this mean? Would access to the tree prevent death from beheading? Or crushing your head with a rock? Or incineration or vaporization in a nuclear holocaust? Would it prevent that? Access to the tree. My view is that the tree merely provided some type of nutritional uh, a nutritional um, nutrition that prevented physiological aging and enhanced if they had wounds wound healing, but it prevented the decay and they uh, they had resilience of their physiology, but it would not prevent evil selfishness, murder, and if access to the fruit were in some way, to prevent um, physiological death, if it did somehow keep someone alive after they were beheaded, if that did work that way, which I don't believe it did, but if it did and the tree was still on earth today, how do you think it would be used? Only for altruistic and beneficial causes? Or would it be used to torture people and torment them? Why did God remove the tree of life? If God would not have removed the tree of life and it remained on earth after sin, accessible. Because it did remain up until the flood, but it was not accessible. The angels barring the way. Think about the witness that was. Think about the witness. There's the Garden of Eden. There's the tree of life. Angels are barring the way. You could see it. You could walk there, but you couldn't get to it. You could just see but you were barred from going. That's what the scriptures describe. They still did what they did. But if it was on earth and you had access to it, who do you think would most likely have governance over it and how would it be used in our society today? If there was the proverbial fountain of youth in existence on earth today, a fountain that would prevent aging and perhaps heal injuries and diseases, who do you think would control it and who would get access to it? Medicare recipients. You get your Medicare card, you get access to the uh, the fountain. (laughs) Do you think if that fountain of youth or the tree of life were on earth today and we had access to it, do you think it would bring greater peace to the earth? Greater harmony or more war? More conflict? So do you see why God took the tree off the earth? So God in mercy removes the tree until he could fulfill his plan of healing hearts and minds. And once we are restored to his original design of love, then the tree will be restored and we will have access to it again. Dust thou art, dust thou shalt return. And the lesson says, points to the utter extinction of life. What does this mean? I can't tell you how many people who have the human imposed law of you say, well, that was God pronouncing his judgment that he will now have to kill them. Wages, uh, If you eat of this tree, you will surely die. Many people believe if you eat of this tree, I'll be required by holiness and righteousness of my law to kill you. It doesn't say that. If you eat of this tree, tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will separate yourself from the source of life. You will decay and die. The wage of sin is death, and sin when full grown brings forth death. So the law lens you look through makes a difference in how you interpret the, the story. But another thought about the tree of life. Does, does life have its origin in a tree? Another way to ask the question is, where did the tree of life come from? Ah, from God. Get your mind around that. Many people think there's like it's the tree, you've got to get the tree. No, the tree was a tool created by God to provide something for mankind, and I believe it's nutritional. But life does not come from the tree. Life comes from God. And this is what John 1 4 says, that in Christ was life, and that life was the light of men. Jesus said in John 6, I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the man in the desert, yet they died. But where, but here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which A man may eat of and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And then Ellen White wrote, Review and Herald, January 26, 1897. Christ is the source of our life, the source of immortality. He is the tree of life. And to all who come to him, he gives spiritual life. Monday's lesson follows up on Sunday's lesson. Uh, and Monday points us uh, to the text in the Bible that speaks of two options, various other texts, life and death. And it points us to 1 John 5, 11 and 12, which reads, And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Again, Jesus is the source of life. And he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. We're all familiar with that text. Where, again, from where does life come? God. From God and now to us through Christ, but it's still coming from God. And Jesus, of course, is God the Son. How is it that all choose for or against Christ if all haven't heard about Christ?
1: Whatever God has put in them that they're responding to when they get, when they get offered a choice, they choose a healthy, life-giving choice rather than a destructive choice, whether that be they know it came from God or they're in the jungle somewhere, they've never heard of God, there are still people who do the right thing in the devil. I mean, they, they choose
0: the right thing. So I agree with you completely. Let's 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 see if we can crystallize that down. We choose Christ whenever we choose truth, love, and freedom. Jesus is love. God is love. Jesus is love. You choose love in any sort. You're choosing Christ. Jesus is truth. I'm the way, of the truth, and Jesus is freedom. We only have freedom in Christ. We only have these in union with Christ. And so in life, as we have these everyday activities, we're choosing. Are we choosing truth? Are we choosing love? Are we choosing the principles of liberty? Are we choosing lies? Well, the lies to ourselves, lies to others. Are we choosing um, selfishness, exploitation? Are we choosing coercion and force and mandates on others?
1: If Satan... You know, Satan wanted to get in to get the tree of life. He hasn't chosen Jesus. That tree was for the healing of uh, the people who have chosen him. Would he have actually? I I don't see how he would have been cut off, wouldn't he, to be able to, even if he had got to the tree.
0: What do you mean Satan had access to the tree of life?
1: If he did, and if he ate the fruit.
0: So there are premises there that are not in evidence. What's Satan's physiology? The tree grew out of the earth. It provided nurturance for people who were made from dirt, human beings. It is for the healing of humans. Satan is an angel. What's his physiology? Does he eat human food? We have no idea. So the question has premises that we have no data for to be able to answer on what it would even do to his physiology or whether he could eat it at all.
1: But did it say in the spirit prophecy that if he had have gotten to the tree that he could live forever?
0: I've never seen any uh, statements regarding Satan in the tree of life. If you find that, I'd like to see it. Yeah. So maybe you hunt that one up and we'll talk about it. But I've never seen anything about Satan having access to the tree of, of, of life.
1: Could it be that Satan is still getting life from Christ?
0: Well, of course. Uh, Satan, absolutely. And, and that's a whole different question. I know we've talked. But yes, in fact, let, let us come, in this lesson we're about to get to, we're going to get some quote and we'll talk about this question about why Satan and his sympathizers were not, uh, did not die immediately in heaven. Had God allowed them to reap what sin brings, they would have died immediately in heaven. But then the angels, having never seen death, would have been confused as the cause of the death. And they would have thought that God killed them and it to sustain Satan's allegations against God. And it would cause more fear because now they're going to be afraid that God's a killer rather than the source of life. And so, so, yes, Satan continues to get his life from God because God in grace allows him to have life because he has to reveal Satan's character methods and principles that are contrast or contrary to the actual basis of life. Yeah, so we'll come to that as so we close. So very good question. So how does everyone choose Christ? As you have done it unto the least of these, you have done it unto me. And notice it wasn't as you kept the right day of the week for worship, as you got baptized in the right way, as you gave the right amount of tithe money. No, it's as you have the sheep and the goats separated at the end are separated based on have you treated others with the principles of God, truth, love, and freedom. If you look at them, that's what you're doing. Truth, love, and freedom. And so people are deciding in how we treat everybody, what law, what system, what kingdom they identify with, and what they incorporate into their own character and the practices they bring to bear and how they live and treat others. And that's how everyone chooses Christ or against. The law of worship enters in by beholding we become changed. So if we have uh, an imperial judicial god that we worship and makes up rules who's the source of inflicted pain and suffering and we call that justice then we will feel in our clear conscience that we must punish other people for doing wrong that's the right way and the way we get a better society is getting uh, the right laws passed and then punishing the people who don't keep our laws that's how we advance god's kingdom and then it is better for one man to die for the nation we must protect the nation let's kill this man and we'll go through the pretext of having a trial. And we'll get the right judicial leaders to condemn him. It's all legal. We're following the law. See this happening in society right now, folks. Right now in society, I can't tell you how many people are, are choosing against Christ by choosing to follow the law but they're embracing the character of Satan and their willingness to compel and coerce and hurt others in order to make themselves feel safe. The lesson points out there's no middle ground. We are either becoming more like Jesus or we're becoming more like his enemy. Second paragraph states uh, in the end yeah well, I just read that okay So you should think on this question how does God eradicate all wickedness and sinfulness and sinners and wicked people in such a way that it results in more love and trust for him and not fear of him
1: Let him go
0: just lets them go. And they suffer the consequences of not having life because they to God. I believe, I, well said. Here's a couple of quotes. Start with the, this one Desire of Ages 759. God could have destroyed Satan and his sympathizers as easy as one cast a pebble to the earth, but he did not do this. Rebellion was not to be overcome by force. Compelling power is found only under Satan's government. Pause. Satan's tempted Jesus in the wilderness, takes him to a mountain, shows him 37% of the kingdoms of the world.
1: <laughs> all.
0: All the kingdoms of the world and claimed them as his and offered them to Christ. And later Christ said, my kingdom is found in Palestine. Not in Palestine not of this world folks the systems of this world use compelling power all of them they're all satan's kingdoms they're all imperial they're all roman romanism is a hierarchy of elites using power to coerce and compel the masses and take from the masses to maintain the lifestyle of the elites that's what romanism is the kingdom of God is, he who was equal with God did not think equality with God, something to be grasped, but humbled himself to become a certain servant for the purpose of lifting up the masses. He gives himself for our benefit. Satan's kingdom is always taking from us for somebody else's benefit. Not only taking, taking against our will. Compelling power sound only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. His authority rests upon. You should try this. Try this. Go to a theologian and say, what does the authority of God rest upon? 99 out of 100 or more will say his law, his power. His authority rests upon goodness, mercy, and love. And the presentation of these principles is the means to be used. God's government is moral, and truth and love are the prevailing power. Truth and love. The spirit is the spirit of truth and love. These are the powers. Now, think of this next quote. We're going to unpack it. It reveals what we're dealing with right now in society, the choice we have between the two sides, how it gets framed, how people get duped into choosing the wrong side, and the result of that wrong choice is it's an incredible quote. And it's Desire uh, of Ages 763, a few pages down from that one. The warfare against God's law, which was begun in heaven, will continue until the end of time. Pause. When you read these things, I'm telling you, you should take time and consider the implications. The warfare against God's law, which began in heaven. Pause. Were the Ten Commandments in existence in heaven? They were not. There was no law that the angels' sins would pass down three and four generations. There was no law for the angels to honor their mothers and fathers. That's right. They didn't have the uh, mothers and fathers. This, this Ten Commandment law was added for the condition of sinful human beings at Sinai. So, so in fact, the Sabbath didn't exist in heaven. It didn't exist until the end of creation week, and the war broke out before earth was created. So what's going on here? The warfare against God's law, which began in heaven, will continue until the end of time. Remember, she writes in another place that when the angels realized that there was a law in heaven, it came to them as something unthought of. Unthought of? And that's it. That's reveals the type of law. There's two general types of law. Laws upon which reality operate, design laws, laws of gravity, laws of physics, laws of health, and also God's moral laws. They're part of that design of how reality operates. And then there are the things we make up because we can't build reality. We make up rules and call them laws and enforce them by punishments. Two completely different types of laws. Which type can be in existence and we live in harmony with them, but we don't even know they're there. Right, how many kids live in harmony with gravity, but they, they may go many, many years before somebody tells them, did you know there's a law of gravity? I never knew that. I just knew I'd get hurt if I jumped off that. This is how design law works. This is the law in heaven. But Satan is warring against that. Imagine trying to war against the law of gravity. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, uh, to overturn that. No. How did he war against God's law? By attacking the idea of law in the minds of intelligent beings, infecting their minds with the idea that God's law is made up rules. Impose law, and once you accept that idea, if you accept the idea that God's laws are made up, it immediately changes your view of God to a rule enforcer. Justice requires punishment. And who's the one that punishes? The one in charge, which makes God the source of inflicted pain and inflicted suffering and inflicted death, which means we need protection from God. We really can't trust Him. This is the war. It's always been the war. Continue on. Very next sentence. After this war, after she says that, uh, this warfare against God's law, which began in heaven, will be continued till the end of time. Every man will be tested. I can hear somebody saying, well, I never do good on tests. Everyone will be tested. What does that mean? How? Will it be a rule? Did you get your TV off before the sun went down? <laughs> did you get the cheese out of your diet? Is that what it means? Every man will be tested. Every man will be tested. Will it be a rule that you be tested on or methods of operation, how you live, how you treat others? You'll have opportunities where you will be tested to be truthful or dishonest. We'll have an opportunity to be compassionate or cruel. you will have an opportunity to grant other person freedom to differ from you or use the power that you have to compel and coerce them. You will be tested. Every person will be tested. Continuing on, obedience or disobedience is the question to be decided by the whole world. What is this obedience again? Is it rule keeping? Were the Jews, was it Sabbath keeping? I mean, we have a, I know of an institution, maybe you've heard of it, that teaches that the final test and the mark of the beast is going to come down to Sabbath keeping. Ever heard of an institution that taught something like that? That's going to be the test. Hmm. Were the Jews who killed Christ obedient because they got him off the cross to go home and keep the Sabbath? Was that the test? Was that the test of obedience for them? Be sure to get, be sure to get me down. I love you guys. Get me off the cross this afternoon before sunset so you can keep the Sabbath and be my obedient children. Was that the test? Did they fail or did they pass? What about the Good Samaritan? Was he disobedient because he didn't keep Sabbath and didn't eat a kosher diet and didn't sacrifice a temple? Is he obedient or disobedient? Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. Then he went on to explain that love uh, for God and uh, uh, keeping the commandments is love for God and, and others. And again, the separation of the sheep and goats in the end is not based on the sheep or Sabbath keepers and tithe payers but how they treated others. What law do you live in your character? Continue on the quote. All would be called to choose between the law of God and the laws of men. Here the dividing line will be drawn. Truth, love, freedom, design law, and how you treat others. Imperialism. Uh, Well, we have a, a series of hospitals that we own and And we're going to mandate our employees get a certain, uh, I don't know, medical treatment they don't want or they'll lose their job. Compelling power is found only under every man will be tested. Which principles will you employ in governance of yourself in the arenas in which you have been given authority? And I will tell you, I see happening in the world and in our church what was happening in the Jewish nation 2,000 years ago. The Jewish nation, God's church on earth, God's people, called to prepare the world for the Advent. They were Bible believers, creation believers, Sabbath keepers, sanctuary uh, worshipers, uh, tithe payers, and yet leadership. did not lead the people to the Messiah, which was their mission. Their mission was to lead people to embrace and accept Messiah when he came. And they didn't do it. The leadership led them to reject Messiah. Why did they do it? Because they had the wrong view of God's law. They were rule keepers. And in 1888, our church had the message that we're talking about, the message of design law, the message that called you back to worship him who made the heavens and the earth to see. And the leadership rejected it and and doubled down on imposed law, Romanism. And today you see the same things happening. Leadership is embracing imperialism, using compelling power, siding with the powers of the state to compel and coerce the consciences of their own church members and employees. It's beastly. And God is permitting it to happen so the membership can wake up and recognize. And think for themselves and stop following. If you were a Jew 2,000 years ago and I, was, and I could warp back in time and talk to you, I would tell you the Jewish nation is God's church on earth and blessed by him with the oracles of God to prepare the world for, for Christ's uh, coming. But you can't trust your leadership. Don't follow them. They'll lead you to reject them. If you have leaders using the methods of the world Imperial rules, coercive power, compelling mandates. You should seriously question whether you should be following them or not. Amen.
1: And that's the other thing about going to heaven. that You mentioned how you treat others. But the other hand of that is, do you know God, the real God, who he really is? Uh, because they'll say, well, we did everything in your name. We did all the right things in your name. And God's response was, get away from me, you evildoers. I never knew you.
0: Yeah, there you go. All will be called to choose between the law of God and the laws of men. Here, the dividing line will be drawn. What laws are you practicing? There will be but two classes. Every character will be fully developed. And all will show whether they have chosen the side of loyalty or that of rebellion. By what? By choosing the law that they embrace, identify with, and practice in how they treat others. Continuing on. Then, the end will come. God will vindicate his law and deliver his people. How does God vindicate? By, okay, now I'm, now I'm free to use my power to kill them? No. He vindicates by restoration of the righteous to his sinless perfection. He restores us. Satan and all who have joined in him in rebellion will be cut off. Sin and sinners will perish, root and branch. Satan, the root, and his followers, the branch. The word will be fulfilled to the prince of evil. Because you have sent your heart as the heart of God, I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thou shalt be a terror and never shall uh, be any more. And then the wicked shall not be. And, and according to Ezekiel, Obadiah, and other places. Uh, How is it Satan and the sympathizers are destroyed? According to this author, according to scripture, other places, they are cut off. They are cut off. Cut off from what? The source of life. Uh, Cut off from the source of life. But what causes them to be cut off? Who decides to cut them off? They beg, if you remember, they beg for the mountains to fall on them and hide them from him who sits on the throne. They don't want to live in the presence of pure love and truth. They don't like it there. It torments them to be in a place of holiness. They hate it. They hate honesty. Continuing on. This is not an act of arbitrary power on the part of God. What, what what, What does arbitrary power mean? Enforcing rules. What this courtroom does, that's arbitrary power, deciding, okay, you got caught, you were doing 40 in a 35 zone, okay, but all right, um, I'm going to only fine you, I'm going to fine you 50 bucks, but I understand you're a student, so I'm going to drop it down to five for you. That's all arbitrary. That's arbitrary power. This is not an act of arbitrary power on the part of God. The rejectors of his mercy reap that which they have sown. There's a law one of God's design laws, the law of sowing and reaping. What's it saying Galatians? Those who sow to the carnal nature from that nature reap destruction Galatians 6. And that's a that,
1: uh, strange
0: act. The strange act is the act of letting them reap it, no longer shielding them from it. Throughout all human history so far, God's grace has been holding in check the full consequence of what sin would do to sinners. He, he's actually been mitigating it, limiting it. But at this point, he removes and lets them reap fully what they have chosen. Exactly. It's a very strange act. Because love doesn't want to let go of the object of the love. And God loves all of these. These are his children. God is the fountain of life. Can you the quote? God is the fountain of life. And, and when one chooses the service of sin, he separates from God and thus cuts himself off from life. This is exactly why they die in the end. He is alienated from the life of God. Christ said, all they that hate me love death. God gives them an existence for a time that they may develop their character and reveal their principles. What decides the character that they develop? The choices they make and how they live their lives day in, day out, and how they treat others. This accomplished, they receive the results of their own choices. By a life of rebellion, Satan and all who unite with him place themselves so out of harmony with God that his very presence is to them a consuming fire. The glory of him who is love will destroy them. At the beginning of the great controversy, the angels did not understand this. This is your question now. They didn't understand this. Why didn't they understand it? Were they stupid? Or there had never been sin? No one had ever seen death, and Satan had introduced lies. So if death came after the lies were introduced, they would interpret it through the wrong lens. Had Satan and his host been left to reap the full result of their sin, they would have perished. From what? From being cut off from the source of life. From their own choice of alienation and choosing to sever that connection with life. But it would not have been apparent to the heavenly beings that this was the inevitable result of sin. Understand, sin, not God, causes death. Sin, not God, causes death. God is the source of life. But Satan has has so infected the minds of people that in the church today, including our own church, people teach that God, in order to be just, must use his power to kill And they make God out to be the source of death. He is not the source of death. He's the source of life. And this is why we're still languishing, because we still haven't taken the final message of mercy. We take this mixed message. Let's see. A doubt of the goodness of God would have remained in the minds and an evil seed to produce a deadly fruit of woe. But not so when the controversy will be ended. Why will it not be so? Because it will be revealed that not one person died at God's hands. And she says elsewhere... That the death of the wicked is, quote, voluntary with themselves and just and merciful on the part of God. God has the power to keep them alive in his presence, but to keep them alive in his presence would cause them perpetual torment because they hate love, they hate truth. It agonizes them because they have solidified themselves into (laughs) selfishness and lies and they don't want to be there. Then the plan of redemption having been completed, the character of God is revealed to all created intelligences, the precepts of his law are seen to be perfect and immutable, then sin has made manifest its nature, Satan his character, then the extermination of sin will vindicate God's love and establish his honor before the universe of beings who delight to do his will and and in whose heart is his law. Any questions about that? Do you see where we are today? Do you see how this is exactly the battle we're in right now? Do you see how quickly he can deceive people to violate God's law of truth, love, and liberty, use the systems of the world to mandate, compel, and coerce others to save lives for a good cause under the law? Obedience. We're we're law keepers. We're obeying the law. Well, what law are you obeying? Well, man's law. Uh, the 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 executive order from the governor or the president, we we want to be law keepers. We are never called to obey laws that violate God's laws. It's a very subtle trap. In the second paragraph, Tuesday's lesson. It talks about the uh, Hebrew words for good and evil and it uh, points out that the same Hebrew words uh, in uh, Eden uh, at the tree of knowledge of good and evil are the words used here later about good, choose good, uh, don't choose evil uh, to the uh, to what we read in Deuteronomy in our memory text. Why would the words be the same? Do you understand we talked about the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This is not the tree of cognitive data information. This is the tree where they would decide what they would know. Would they know in their heart, in their character, in their being? Would they know good by choosing loyalty and reject the lies? Or would they choose to know evil? This is the the choice they had. Adam and Eve were created sinless and they could have chosen to know only good. But instead, they chose to know evil, fear, selfishness, and it became part of their being. Jesus was born to a sinful mother, and through her, Jesus knew the, knew the experience of being tempted by sin. He was tempted in every way, just like we are. But instead of giving in to temptation, Jesus chose to know in his character only good. We are born in sin, conceived in iniqu- iniquity. We know sin, we know fear, we know selfishness, we know temptation by experience. We know it. But through our faith in Christ, we can choose to die to the old life, die to fear, die to selfishness, die to sin, and we can choose to know good, we can choose to know God. This is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, through what Christ has done. It's knowing and experience. Wendell?
1: I understand what you're saying. It sounds great. Why is it that God, when he talks about the tree of life and whatnot, he says, You know, they are like us. They know...
0: You mean the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Yeah,
1: that's right. No, the the tree of life.
0: No, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. No. Okay.
1: When God is talking about the tree of life, he says, they now know evil, and we need to separate them from the tree of life, et cetera. It, It says that they are like us. They know good and evil. Right. How does God know evil?
0: Uh, he didn't know it in character. He knew it in the pain and suffering because his family in heaven had already rebelled up against him. He had been betrayed. He had been lied about. He had had a third of his angels rebel against him and he lost him. So would you know the evil of sin if somebody murdered one of your children? Would you know that pain and that evil? So he knew it from the experience of what he'd already gone through in heaven, not in his character of being evil, but what the evil does and the heartache it causes. Wednesday's lesson points to Deuteronomy 30. Moses points out, um, when they find themselves in distress, dispersed among the nations, uh, and they turn back to God and obey uh, all he told them, that he would bless them and restore them. And the lesson tells us about, um, asks us what this tells us about God's grace. Uh, our blessings grace from God? Yes. What about the cursing? Is the cursing grace from God? So, what is the cursing? What is it? The cursing that God spoke of here, blessing or cursing, what is the cursing? You see, in mysticism, in witchcraft, in voodoo, cursing is using some power you believe you may or may not have, okay? But it's using some power to put externally on something, somebody, a punishment. I'm going to curse you. I'm going to use a little doll put a jabby needle in it. Okay? Is, is that what this is? If you don't do what I say, I'll use my power to put something on you to make you pay. Is that? How many people think of that, what the cursing is, though? God's doing it to them. Really All the time in my office, I have people that come who've gone through some tragedy. A loved one died in a car wreck. A loved one died from cancer. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. And they will say, why did God take my loved one? Why is God punishing me? That's their idea. So what's the cursing? What is it? Biblically truthful cursing. What is it? But what is it? Blessings removed. removed. Okay, uh, and, and does it go beyond just removing blessings? How about protections removed? Allowing to reap the consequence of the choice. Yes, this is the cursing. This is what the cursing is, and it is an act of grace. When you understand reality, this is an act of grace. When you decide to violate God's law, rather than simply letting you go painlessly to destruction, God allows that road to be filled with suffering and pain. Not to actually punish you but to wake you up. Remember he said to Paul, it's painful to kick against the thorns. Why is it painful? Would it be better for Paul to kick against the thorns, tear his flesh, and feel no pain? When your child touches a hot stove, is it better for them to feel pain or feel no pain? pain. This is design law. It's an act of grace, allowing people to reap what they've insisted upon and what they're sowing into their lives. And he permits this to this, this reaping of loss and pain and suffering to cause and hopefully stimulate reflection and reconsideration and perhaps bring to conviction what brought the prodigal son to repentance and to go home. Suffering with the pigs is what brought him to him. So the so-called cursings are God's grace working to wake us up and turn us back to God. Question.
1: As you once said, the valley of shadow and death.
0: Yes. Yes, the valley, yes, yes.
1: Even the Israelites having been taken to, to Babylon. When you read the Old Testament, they were taken to Babylon because they would not learn any other way. He tried every way he could think of to get them to learn to that his way was the good way to live, but they wouldn't learn any other way. So he backed off and let, let the Babylonians, who were aggressive people willing to take over the entire world, come and get them and take them away. And then after that Babylonian incident, they never again fell back to worshiping idols. That they, they took that final step to actually make them uh, think.
0: So uh, along those lines, Review and Herald, uh, February 26, 1914. I read this just, just a week, maybe it was last week. I might have read this last week, it was not two weeks ago. But it, it, just reflect on this with me again. Had Israel taking heed to the messages of the prophets emphasizing the value of the great things of God's law, they would have been spared the humiliation that followed. It was because they persisted in turning aside from his law that God was compelled to allow their enemies to take them captive. What law? Sinai law. Okay. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, was the message from Hosea. Because because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee. Because thou hast forgotten the law of God. This knowledge is not facts. It's not data. It's the actual knowing of God. This is the knowledge they rejected. The truth of who he is, his creator, his design laws, the laws of love and how they work. And then continuing on, this this is the point we're getting to here. In trial and affliction, they were to learn Lessons that under circumstances more favorable they had refused to learn. Trial and affliction. Trial. This is not a judicial trial. That's not what the word means here. It means trying it out. They're going to give it a try. They're going to give a trial to it. So if your child, under favorable circumstances of just parental love and instruction, will not learn to avoid touching a hot stove. They won't learn from the favorable instruction of a loving parent trying to instruct them and protect them about what will happen. Then they will go through their trial of touching the hot stove and learn through affliction of being burned not to touch the hot stove. It's reality. It's beautiful. This is what God does. Okay, we're going to close today um, with, a, uh, with this. God's grace is working. Understand, when you're saying grace, it's yes, it's blessings. It's blessings but it's also permitting us to reap the pain when we deviate from his designs and we won't learn under more favorable circumstances. He doesn't just abandon us. It would not be favorable to us to break his laws and only experience pleasure and reward that would only um, accelerate our destruction. So he allows the cursing or the pain to alert us something's wrong to try to get us to turn around. That's an act of grace as well. So everything God does is for us. And so this is out of the uh, Romans 8, 31, 39 from The Remedy. What then can we possibly say in response to this? Don't you realize that God is on our side? And if God is for us, who can be against us? God did not need convincing to be good to us. No, it is we who need convincing that God is good to us. If he did not withhold his own son but gave him up for us all, don't you realize that he will withhold nothing good from us? But along with his son, he will give us all things that are for our good. Who is it then that brings charges against those whom God has chosen? Stop believing Satan's lies about God. It is not God who brings charges against us. It is God who sets us right with himself. It is God who heals and transforms us. Then who condemns? It is not Jesus, oh no. Christ Jesus, who died, and more importantly, who was raised from death to life, is sitting at God's right hand and is working hand in hand with his Father. Together they are interceding with the malignancy of sin in our minds and holding in check the power of of the evil one, while providing the remedy for our deliverance, healing, and restoration. Who then shall ever separate us from the love of Christ? shall problems or hardships or criticism or persecution or hunger or disease or homelessness or nakedness or imprisonment or financial ruin or terrorists or war as it is written for no matter what we face including death we will not doubt you even if we are treated as sheep led to the slaughter our confidence in you will not waver in all things no matter what we face we are more than conquerors through trust in him who loved us. For I am absolutely convinced that God is totally on our side and nothing can separate us from his love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the past nor present nor future, nor any power in the universe, neither things exalted nor things debased, nor anything else in all creation, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Gracious Father in heaven, We are so thankful that you are on our side, have always been on our side, and always will be on our side. You have manifested it to us in every way imaginable, ultimately sending your Son. We ask now that your Spirit will be poured out Help these truths become our experience that we might know you in heart, mind, and character, that we would be transformed to be like you and make us effective witnesses for you in this world, so caught up in fear, so willing to use coercive power on others. May we not participate in these beastly systems of this world, but be witnesses for your kingdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen.